Welcome to The Savvy Sauce, where we have practical chats for intentional living. I'm your host, Laura Duggar, and I'm so glad you're here. We made it. Today, we get to share the most popular episode from 2018. Today is also our final giveaway for the year on social media. So unless you're a patron and have access to all of our additional podcasts, we will be seeing you back here on Monday, January 6th with a really awesome chat. Until then, we wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Today's sponsor is Chick-fil-A East Peoria, and they have quite a few exciting updates that I'm going to share later on in this episode. You can visit them online at cfaeastpeoria.com. Thank you for tuning in today as we have the privilege to hear from Dr. Jennifer Kanzen. I want to let you know right away that this content is intended for adult listeners as we will be discussing sexual intimacy in marriage. Please use discernment if you have little ears present. Also, this content was designed for couples who are not currently in crisis. If you are in crisis, we would recommend seeking professional local help as soon as possible. Dr. Kanzen has an impressive bio because she is a certified sex therapist, award-winning researcher, international speaker, adjunct professor, author, wife, and mother. Today, she addresses topics related to overcoming difficulties connecting physically, gender differences related to arousal and desire, and ways to add pizzazz into the marital relationship. I hope you leave our talk today equipped and encouraged. Welcome, Dr. Kanzen. Well, thank you for having me. We are so honored to have you chat with us today. Let's start by laying the foundation for our chat. What does God have to say about sex? It's funny because people think there's not much in the Bible about sex, actually. Most people will say it says, don't have it till you're married and don't ever turn your husband down. And that's about it, you know, (laughs) and there's a lot more that the Bible has to say with sex, which actually both of those are have different questions to them. And God says a lot about sex. He actually devotes an entire book of the Bible to it. Um, Song of Solomon is full of sensuality and sexuality. So, I mean, bottom line, when I'm talking about what God does say about sex, I talk about the overarching view of sexuality within the scriptures. You can see that painted throughout different parts of the Bible. And my one of my favorites, this is out of Piper and Taylor's Sex and the Supremacy of Christ, is where they explain how when you look at Ezekiel 16 and Ezekiel 23, God's actually addressing the nation of Israel, and he is talking about their idolatry, but he's using the language of adultery. And it's amazing because when you look at it, he is explaining idolatry by using pictures that we get. If you're in a married relationship, if you're thinking of getting married, the idea of a spouse being unfaithful, and and many who, who are married have experienced unfaithfulness in their marriages. And it's there's just nothing like the pain of adultery. And God uses this sexual language. He uses the language of adultery in very explicit sexual terms to show us his heart. He wants us to know him. And that's just really helpful to me. Sexuality isn't this like God's over here and we're over here. You know, you, you even look at the terms in Matthew 1, 25 and Genesis 4, 1. Those are the terms where It says, uh, Joseph did not gnosko Mary. He did not know Mary in the Greek until Jesus was born. And it says in Genesis 4.1, Adam yada Eve. Adam did not know Eve. It's actually the same word in two different languages that means to know. And when you look at the use of that word throughout both the Old and the New Testament, it's talking about a deep, intimate knowing of. That that's the word that God uses to describe sexuality this deep, intimate knowing. So when you look at the overarching view of sexuality scripturally, as far as your question about what does God have to say about it, is that he uses sexuality to connect with us at a heart level. He wants us to know him. And that then when he describes sexuality, it's as it's about this deep, intimate knowing. And it's really important to understand that because sexuality isn't just about the physical act. It's the whole intimate connection 
between us and another. It's the same, actually that word to know, gnosko and yada, um, it's the same word that describes our relationship with God when it says, uh, I know the Father, the Father knows me, I know the sheep and they know my voice. It's the same word, uh, gnosko there. So God, that intimate knowing of one another, that's actually the same intimate knowing between Jesus and God, us and God, not because that relationship with God and Jesus is sexual, but because the depth of intimate connection between them is what's supposed to be happening in the sexual relationship. So God's view of sexuality is not at all negative. It's very, very positive. And it is a way that he then connects with us at a heart level. Wow, that is beautifully said. Thank you so much for all the background information. And that is just a a sample. That's a full conference in about two minutes. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) And speaking of conferences, you do a lot of this and meet with a lot of clients. What sexual education do you often share with people? Well, sexual education is vital when you're working, when I'm working with people. And I think it's vital for most individuals because we we don't actually know number one how it works and we don't necessarily know what is common and what I would call normative so what's normal and so a lot of times people are confused by their bodies or they're confused by what's happening with their spouse like why isn't this working and a lot of the time when I'm working with men and women I have to do some educating because there's a misunderstanding of how the sexual body works. Well, the part of it has to do with how long it takes to stimulate somebody to achieve an orgasm. So uh, it takes two to five minutes for the typical male to reach orgasm. And males need direct stimulation to the penis to reach orgasm. Women, on the other hand, when you ask, okay, how long does it take women to reach orgasm? Um, it takes about 20 to 30 minutes for the typical female. And and the challenge with that is people tend to think that women reach orgasm, that all women reach orgasm during intercourse, and that's not even statistically true. Only about 30% of women reach orgasm through intercourse. And so if you're expecting that I'm going to have an orgasm through intercourse, you're going to have a slight math problem there. It takes men two to five minutes. It takes women 20 to 30. So if you're expecting intercourse to get you to orgasm and, and and he's and this comes up with couples he's you know not lasting long enough and i've heard this from wives or i've heard husbands who are frustrated that their wife's not reaching orgasm and so you have to do a lot of education around the stimulation specifically yes to the female genitalia that women need really indirect touch in fact if you do go directly to the clitoris and vigorously stimulate it most women will go, stop. So the indirect touch for women is more meaning you, the caressing to the entire vulva versus the direct stimulation for men to the penile region. Not only is it difference in where and the type, indirect versus direct, but also in the length of time. So this one piece, educating around stimulation, is usually pretty helpful. That's a great intro. And even in your book, you will show the pictures of the anatomy and describe exactly what you're talking about. Right. Yeah. And that's vital because most women actually don't know where their body parts are, where their sexual body parts are. Um, They're not sure where they urinate from. They don't know where their urethra is. And then men don't know these things either about women. In fact, when I put up the picture of the vulva in conferences, and sometimes I've had a huge screen and the vulva is like 20 feet high. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The reality is it's the men as much as the women that are going, oh, because there's this kind of belief that the clitoris is just a little knobby thing at the top of the vulva, and they don't even know it's called the vulva. They'll call the whole area the vagina. Actually, the vagina is just the the tube that goes into the pelvic floor. The vulva is the entire area, and the clitoris, they think, is just that knobby thing at the top, when actually the clitoris comes all the way down. The legs of the clitoris come all the way down around the vulva. I actually had a woman say to me, I just learned that I have two sets of legs, which I thought was hilarious. That's clever. (laughs) Yeah, isn't that funny? Um, The reality is, um, yes, knowing anatomy and understanding the process of 
stimulation to orgasm, understanding how arousal works and how the blood flow comes in, understanding how men and women are different around desire. Most men uh, desire sexuality before engaging. Most women, especially post-childbirth years, their desire doesn't kick in until they start touching and caressing. So men and women are so radically different, and the physiological differences need to be explained so that couples can find out how to bring each other pleasure physically. Absolutely. And let's camp there for just a moment. You mentioned that even after childbearing, that men and women will experience desire differently. And if that's not explained in culture, it seems like a lot of women think if I'm not having the same drive as my husband, something's wrong with me. So could you unpack that a little bit more about gender differences even? Yeah. And so... And, and let me just say, even as I start to unpack that, is that I do think it's not just a female thing. I do think, like I'd say, of those who come into my office, about 30% of the men have low desire, meaning their wife has a higher desire. And when our culture tells us that all men want sex, and I've got men in my office and men in, that we all know in our communities that have low desire, they are also going, what's wrong with me? Or their wife is saying what's wrong with him and where else is he having sex? If he doesn't want sex all the time, he must be, at least he doesn't ask me to have sex, then he must be doing it somewhere else or there's something wrong with him. So it is also this view of desire and that you should always want it if you're a male is problematic. For women, often, well, this is both husbands and wives, if their spouse doesn't feel desire, the, the communication is they're not attracted to me. They're not interested in me. They don't, uh, men don't necessarily, they'll use the word want. She doesn't want me. At least the men that I work with, that's the word that comes up that if she isn't thinking about sex and if she's not initiating sex, then it means she doesn't want me. If she's not desiring sex, it is more common for men to desire, to physically, well, mentally, image, think about, feel arousal through their day, um, and so on. You know, visually they're stimulated and they, they, they feel the desire to have an orgasm, have sex. Yes, that is like statistically, we know that men have, do in general have a higher desire for sex. And so what happens is if, if women don't think about sex ahead of time and then they therefore aren't maybe initiating it, the belief can be then, she doesn't want me. She's not interested in me. And it's important to realize there are so many factors. Number one, so Bassan, she's a researcher and, she, and an, a clinician, and she says that desire doesn't actually kick in until the touch start, happens, which I mentioned earlier. When you free people from that expectation that it's supposed desire is supposed to happen beforehand, then they can go, oh, so once we get going and my desire kicks in, that's actually normal. That's 70% of women. So it's very freeing to find out that desire comes later. And so when our culture and our gendered expectations are, this is how sex works, uh, whether it has to do with how old you are, whether it has to do what gender you are, what time of life you're in, it's really important to to set some of those um, cultural expectations aside and and, and realize the blaming that they cause and the really a lot of the arguments that it causes or the hurt that it causes in marital relationships. Wow, that's great. And just such a grace-filled answer. Like you said, it offers freedom. And for yep. those women, a lot of times they'll say after a few minutes, like you said, indirect stimulation, maybe the caressing, touching, holding, that they think, okay, this sounds like it's not a bad idea and the desire right. will kick in. Yeah. So that's helpful to see for women. And I really appreciate you clarifying with men. Let's camp out there for a little while now. I would say just from my clinical experience, I would say a good percentage of the couples I see the reason, one of the reasons anyway, that they're coming in is that the men have low desire. And we don't hear about that often. Like you said, the wife may be feeling that he's not attracted to her or many other reasons. So... 
what are some of those reasons why men in their married relationship have the lower desire? Well, it can be physiological if they have um, a low output from their testes of testosterone or if they have hypogonadism, meaning that low production of testosterone. Uh, it can absolutely affect desire because it affects motivation overall and, uh, if, if testosterone is low. But even if that's not the case, it may be life, it may be fatigue, it may be I have individuals that they'll tell me they don't actually test as low in their testosterone but that they just didn't think about it much when they were younger. They didn't really, they definitely went through a time, you know, years of their life with masturbation, maybe even with pornography, but that they'd hear about men who just always were wanting sex and they would not identify with that gendered norm of wanting it all the time. And so that can actually create lots of challenges as men, um, come into their adulthood and these expectations of this is what a man is supposed to be like. And then they come into a marital relationship and that expectation is there from, from their wife because of what our culture might, society might say. Often these men aren't necessarily bothered by it until they're either starting to think, why aren't I like other men? Or until they're hearing from their spouse, why aren't you initiating and yeah, it, it really, it can be caused by a great number of things. It can be caused by work stress. That's a big one. It can be caused by a lack of sleep. And it can just be that they have an innate low desire. They don't actually think about it that much. And so one of the things I tell people is, okay, you have low desire. All right. You know, it's actually a diagnosis in the DSM. And I think that can be problematic sometimes as if it's some kind of disorder when it might not be a disorder at all. That's great. Very freeing again. And that can take away the shame, even when you educate further. That's helpful. And now a brief message from our sponsor. I want to say thank you to our longtime sponsor, Chick-fil-A East Peoria. And I want to share a few updates with you about Chick-fil-A East Peoria. First of all, I hope that you've already downloaded the Chick-fil-A app, because did you know that with the app, you can skip the line and have food ready for you when you arrive? You can even sit down at your favorite table and have your meal brought directly to you as you get settled in. This is one of my favorite options when I'm taking my four daughters to Chick-fil-A East Peoria. So with this Chick-fil-A app, you can do all these things while earning points toward free rewards that are fully customized to your preferences and tastes. So I hope you download the Chick-fil-A app today and start earning your free treats. I also want to update you on Chick-fil-A East Peoria's new product, Mac and Cheese. This is a classic recipe featuring a blend of Monterey Jack, cheddar, Parmesan, and Romano cheeses. The Mac and Cheese is baked fresh daily in the restaurant, so it tastes like home. They have it available as a premium side, a kid's meal side option, and in catering trays. I know our family loves to use the catering option when we're hosting people at our home. And if we get the Chick-fil-A mac and cheese, we know that the kids and adults alike will love something we're serving. Finally, I want to let you know that Chick-fil-A was named as one of Glassdoor's best places to work in the nation. That's a huge honor. And one team member even wrote, no comparison. This is a great job for a first job, extra money, or for career advancement. Such a loving environment, great management, and fair pay. Chick-fil-A believes that the local and involved ownership ensures fostering an environment where you are known, challenged, and cared for. So if you're looking for a wonderful place to work, I would love to encourage you to visit Chick-fil-A East Peoria or fill out an application online today at cfaeastpeoria.com. So what other areas of marital intimacy help foster healthy sexual intimacy? Oh boy. Yeah. This could be the whole time that we're together because there's a (laughs) lot of areas, (laughs) you know, one of the first things that I work with, with couples, well, I tell them I'm a sex therapist, but really I'm an intimacy specialist. So I work with the overall intimacy in marriage and sexuality when it's not surrounded by all of the lovely pieces of what can be there in the overall intimate relationship. Sexuality is separated from that. It's not very fulfilling. 
either for the husband or the wife. And so the areas that I first work on is what I would call verbal and emotional intimacy. So that has to do with how well a couple is really sharing heart to heart, how much they're expressing their fears, their um, hopes, their dreams, their mistakes, their, you know, all those more scary, vulnerable parts. And so if that's not happening, if emotional connection isn't happening, if they're not talking heart to heart, it's pretty challenging to have a really intimate connection sexually. Um, and then definitely I work quite a bit with touch overall. Oftentimes when sexuality becomes problematic, all areas of intimacy become problematic. It kind of ricochets through the rest of the relationship. Touch, just affectionate touch becomes problematic. And then definitely the verbal and emotional connection becomes problematic. So the other area of intimacy that doesn't get talked about very much, I just met with a couple just recently and um, we were doing an, a communication exercise around their affection and their touch and their relationship. And after they got done, they were like, this is kind of awkward. And I said, I know. I said, when's the last time you talked about touch and affection in your relationship? And they kind of looked at each other and they're like, I don't think we ever have. And so they're a perfect example of, we don't talk about touch except for maybe anger conversations on you're, you're not affectionate, you know, and, and the angry conversations that come up. But talking honestly and openly about the, that part of intimacy is, is vital. And then people don't talk about sensual touch. So this is everything but genital touch, all, all the different, the caressing, the sensual parts of the body. And that doesn't get talked about. So honestly, one of the biggest things that I do in building intimacy is helping people communicate about the different levels of intimacy. And then I spend quite a bit of time on building relational intimacy, how to connect and have fun together, because that is, can't even measure how important that is. And I talk about body image because body image affects intimacy overall. And I do talk about how I, I actually give people, well, this is a common technique that you, a therapist would send couples home with saying, go have dates. I call them fun times. Date times are fun times. Go have fun together. So couples often don't even know where to start with having fun. So all those areas, verbal, physical, touch and affection, having fun together, everything having to do with their body image. If, if, if they're connecting around all of those areas, it makes a huge difference somehow their sexual intimacy goes. That's great. It is so multifaceted. And then even for the fun dates that you send them on, if a couple today is listening to this and they want to try it this week, what would you say to them? What should that look like? So there's a, a workbook that goes with uh, his needs, her needs, and it's called the five steps to romantic love. And in it is a worksheet on relationship companionship. And it literally has a list of like four pages of all of these activities that couples can do. And the husband fills out one and the wife fills out the same thing and they, they number it uh, negative three to positive three. And I'll give couples these worksheets because Often they don't even know where to start on what the different possibilities are. And in these worksheets, it's got play chess together and go boating and take a dance class and play cards and go see a movie and go out to dinner and walk on the beach. And it's got this list of a bunch of different activities. And so couples put a number by each activity and then they add them up and they see which ones add up to like a five or a six. And then they go, okay, let's try this one. And it's funny because years ago, um, we actually, my husband and I facilitate marriage dynamics, utilizing those two books. And we came up with the fact that both of us, and we'd never talked about it, liked the idea of taking, uh, what do you call it? One of those dance classes where you learn waltzing and the salsa and all of that ballroom dancing class. And we were like, oh, well, then we should go and do this. And we've now since, no, it's been a while, but we've done it twice. And how much fun we had doing that. And honestly, sometimes it's exposing yourself to some of these other possibilities and going and trying them out and, and goofing around, having fun, trying it out together. Oh, that's amazing. And it just shows for anybody listening today, no matter how long you've been married, you can always learn something new about one yeah. another. That's so true. It's excitement. Well, this next question has three parts. 
what phase of marriage do you hear clients say it's most difficult to connect physically? What are those roadblocks and how do you suggest overcoming them? Okay. Well, definitely overall, the probably the biggest one I hear is what happened after they had kids that we actually just yesterday I was with a couple and things were great. And then the kid came <laughs> and that sounds so like the kids came, but that is a reality that when children come, well, number one, physiologically, there's challenges for the wife often. And then the fatigue is so high and the focus is all of a sudden not, and this couple literally said, we'd go on walks, we'd go on dates it was so fun. And then we had kids. <laughs> and so couples don't uh, foster. They do a, the, the, the fostering of that part of their relationship dies off. And so, of course, then not only is, are there physiological changes for the female, but then there's the time differences, the fatigue difference. And so the childbearing years into the early raising of those children is one of the biggest ones that comes up. Then I would definitely say big time. The second biggest one, because a lot of my clients are older, they're in their 50s, maybe 60s, their children are either about to or are leaving home. And they've all of a sudden, you know, start realizing that with the children leaving home, they're, they're recognizing that they don't have much connection. And so a good chunk of the couples that come in to see me, the what will happen is the wife is finally saying to the husband, I haven't enjoyed sex for 20 years. <laughs> and now the kids are gone and I'm thinking, wait a minute, what about me? And it's also, I'm thinking about it in our sexual life as well. So they haven't communicated about their sexuality since those childbearing years. And here they are 20 years into it. And it's really at that level, honestly, the problems are sometimes quite complicated. And I would say that would be this boy, almost half and half there. I do have couples as well that, um, come in because the years where they're in uh, more advanced aging, again, kind of similar into the 50s and 60s and into the 70s, where physiologically they're starting to have lots of challenges or they're having a lot of issues with vaginal pain or they're having a lot of issues with erectile functioning. And so, yeah, I would say those three time periods, the uh, childbearing years, the teenage years, and then the older years as couples age. And in all honesty, it's kind of similar in all of those as far as um, what the roadblocks are is there's just a lack of prioritizing that is majorly happening for all of those ages. They're not intentional in their uh, overall intimate relationship as well as their sexual relationship. Um, also, though, one of the big roadblocks is what's going on with physical health. And so same in all three. Um, physically, things can be challenging for women during and for men, but especially because childbirth can cause a change in hormones. It can create all kinds of different challenges in the genital areas for women. They will often say they don't experience the same level of arousal when they are touched and stimulated. They don't feel the same level of orgasmic response. And then I would definitely say the physical health comes up big time through the years and then definitely as couples age. And so I work with individuals who have chronic pain, they have back issues, they have diabetes, they have lupus, they've had breast cancer and prostate cancer. And so those physical health issues are major roadblocks. And then definitely in all of that time period, uh, when couples don't have a good ability to resolve conflict in their relationship, it becomes highly problematic. Um, conflict, they'll tell me they got along when they were dating, they got along in early marriage, the conflict started to build, and then children came, and the conflict got pretty bad, and then by the time they're in the teenage years, they're not connected any longer, and the conflict is high, and then they come in to see me, and they've had, you know, challenge with conflict for quite some time. And they've had some things that have happened between them that are really painful. Either there's been betrayals or there's been the use of drugs and alcohol or any other kind of addiction or other kinds of huge areas of conflict. And it's unresolved. So there are 
major barriers to having great connection in the sexuality. And I tell couples, first of all, they have to begin to take very specific steps towards building intimacy and they have to do it intentionally. However, a lot of the time you have to work on those unresolved issues sometimes even first, before you even work on, let's build our friendship back. You know, sometimes they, they, they want to build their friendship back. They want to get emotionally and verbally close. But if you don't work on resolving the issues, that's not going to work to do some of that practical stuff. So you do have to be intentional. You do have to work on the unresolved issues. Sometimes people have to go and see a medical specialist. Often I'm sending people to a sexual medicine specialist because in my work with those who specialize in the medical issues that come up with sexuality, the pain and the physical problems they're having need to be specifically addressed by somebody who's more informed than, say, their gynecologist or their urologist. So going and getting help from a specialist and really honestly getting help with other relationships, either seeing somebody professionally when people are involved in churches, are they are they getting connected with other couples? Are they getting open with their relationship with others that are helping them? So what one of the biggest things that I do in working with people is upping their entire support network, including, you know, really working through their relationship with me and the help that I can give them. So yeah, a number of roadblocks and a number of things that I usually work with couples on on how to overcome them. I love that. That response just gives so much hope no matter where you're at. It's not too late to start with this intentionality and get people to come alongside and support. And for those who are newly married, maybe, or they just had their first child, what would you advise to them for prioritizing one another above their children, even in these young years, when that can feel conflicting, maybe, especially to a mom? Right. You know, it's vital. When you look at Song of Solomon, he talks about that I have placed you as a seal over my heart and couples will often lose the, you know, who's the seal over my heart. It's not actually my children. I'm a mother of four. I get the level of uh, emotion and both in fears and joys that parents feel with their children And it can be really easy to get lost in that and forget that actually, biblically, um, I am called to have that level of commitment and joy in and uh, intentional focus, prioritizing towards my spouse. And it does take, yes, intentional focus and realizing that sometimes that means time. When I work with young couples that come in, one of the first things I check on pretty early on is, do they talk together during the day? Do they talk together at night? Do they put their children down to sleep at a good hour so that they can have a life after they go to bed? So honestly, sometimes I'm working with sleep schedules, which is kind of funny. And then I'll talk about, do you get away without your children? Do you have people in your life that can help you with kids? Do you swap with other families? Do you have a child care swapping, you know, where you watch theirs, they watch yours, and you go out on dates? Do you have family in town? Often people will say, oh, gosh, I do. I, but we just, we don't ever. And so they have the connections, but they don't use them. And then I do talk about how do you get away for more than, you know, a date? Do you get away overnight? Uh, often couples will say that their best sex actually occurs when they're on vacation. And so sometimes they have to take little mini vacations, just the two of them with no children. And yet that sometimes means you have to, again, pay attention to their support network and teaching them how to use it. So building purposeful intimacy, both in the home. So this is, are they talking? Are they doing small, intimate gestures at home? And then I talk about their schedules and are they prioritizing time together within the home after the children are down? Are they going on dates? Are they getting away overnight? Because that relational building has a huge impact on how sex goes. And then the practicals are, do you have, do you teach your children not to walk in your room? Um, Some couples put locks on doors. 
but you can also teach them that they can't come in the room unless they ask so that you can have, you know, sex and not worry about your kid walking in. I joke with parents uh, when their kids get older that sometimes kids will hear things and it happens, you know, teenagers, young children walk in, they hear things and parents are so mortified and worried about that happening that then they don't set themselves up for success to find ways to engage sexually and enjoy each other without having to be worried or paranoid about their kid hearing or walking in. So there are practical things and then there is the intentional focus of our marriages got to be more important even than our children, that the best thing you can give your children is that you have a great marriage. The best way, I tell parents, the best way you can teach your kids about sex because they're so worried about you know, sexuality in their children, the best way you can teach your kids about sex is have a great sex life. Oh, I love that. I love that. So much joy in that response. And what are some common questions related to sex that you get, such as how often is normal? (laughs) Yeah, so I I do get that a lot, Um, either in anger, where people are like, you know, all our friends are doing it this often and we do it this often or or worry like, are we normal? What is regular? What's typical? And it really does differ greatly. Sex can happen for, for most couples, I would say. Definitely monthly would be about the lower end of regular. Um, but most couples that are in an active, satisfying sexual relationship are engaging weekly But I hate to put numbers on things because then if they're not engaging weekly, they're feeling like something's wrong with us. And so what can happen with the idea of normal is that people can become demanding and upset and angry with one another. And so idea of normal, I usually try to help them with that that word might be problematic. And I help them figure out how often would they like to have sex. Now, you often have a difference, male and female. You you will have women that will say that they want sex more often than their husband does. Um, yes, there is a higher percentage of men who are saying they want sex more often than their wife. But normal can be hugely different and, and it can become a bit of a weapon um, that couples will use against each other. And so I really help them figure out how do you decide how often you want to have sex. How do you even have that conversation? Because most of the time they're not talking about it. But then also when one of you wants to have sex and the other one doesn't, how do you manage that? That's pretty tricky sometimes and it can create a lot of conflict. And I'm a sex therapist, but I actually teach people how to refuse. So, you know, how to refuse a sexual initiation is a big part of the work that I do. That's a great point. And so what is a practical takeaway for a refusal that would still be honoring and maybe set up a different time that would work. Yeah, I would, I literally, the language I use and coach my couples with is what I call a, a stop continue. I actually do it around how to do the dishes and the laundry together. And then I do it around touch and then I do it around sexual and sensual touch. And then I do, I apply it to the different levels of the relationship so that then they can learn how to say, do you want to stop or do you continue? And then if you want to say stop, if you, if, if someone comes and says, do you want to do this? And you want to say no, that I coach them through saying, well, actually I would rather. And so if you're going to say no, then you say what I'd rather do is, and that's literally the language I coach. What I'd rather do is so well, so if a spouse comes and says, hey, do you want to? And their partner would say, well, what I'd rather do is I'm really exhausted. So how about on Saturday, we have some really great time together. And tonight, how about we give each other a foot rub and then we cuddle and go to sleep? Or how about tonight we have a quickie and we have a more extended time on Wednesday? Or how about you know, I'm not feeling well. How about we hold hands and go to sleep? And then so some kind of I want to stay connected. I'm hearing what you want. I though also have some needs. And so you're you're being assertive with those needs, but then you're not slamming the door. 
you're saying, let's do this. And that's the, what I'd rather do is, and let's do this at this time. So there's teaching that and coaching that is vital. I, 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 in my experience. And that is so honoring the way that you put that and the language you give to it, that it's honoring to both spouses. Now on the flip side, what if one spouse always is saying no, how would you coach them? Well, often they, it's almost the same. They haven't learned to be assertive with what they want. And so they feel like the only answer they have is no. So that's a problem. Also, this is especially true for women. If they haven't learned to prioritize their own enjoyment of sexuality, then, you know, the no is going to come out more. And so teaching sexual assertiveness is vital. Gosh, historically, you're talking thousands of years, let alone the last few decades. Women historically, um, the emphasis on female sexual enjoyment is low. And so it's something that I work a bit with couples and with, with the women on and the men on how to prioritize female sexual enjoyment. And also when people are commonly saying no, sometimes, especially if they're spiritually involved and they really want to honor each other the way God would want them to, or the way that the scriptures would encourage them to, is sometimes people need to relearn their view of sexuality biblically. And so I'll give them different tools. I actually have a book that I love. It's called Hot and Holy by uh, Sam Lang. And it's just this small little book um, that goes over Song of Solomon and relearning the incredible view of sexuality that that whole book teaches. And so sometimes there's a relearning that needs to happen to help sex be positive in how people feel about it. Sometimes the no comes from, gosh, so many different things. It can come from negative background if people are having any issues with sexual abuse that they were dealing with. So the no, you have to find out where the no is coming from, why they're saying it, and then help them to communicate it to their spouse in a way that doesn't feel like I'm being rejected. Now, sometimes people say no because they are challenged with being able to be giving And so I literally will explore that in the office on what would it be like to consider the other and what is a way that you can still honor your needs and still think of the other as well. And so that's a a rather involved answer on what do you do when people generally say no. And I think there's you got to carefully deal with it because our culture says you can't say no. Our our, our church culture says you can't say no, which is actually a, a real misunderstanding of of um, Corinthians. So. And that's such a gentle answer in the way you respond. And then switching gears to a little bit more lighthearted topic. What are some tips you have for adding a little bit more pizzazz back into your intimate life as a married couple? You know, one of the biggest things is get back to enjoying everything having to do with sensuality. Um, Couples, Often I joke, you hold hands and then you have intercourse (laughs) and there's not a lot in between. And so one of the biggest things that I will tell people, it's a really common technique in sex therapy is getting back to sensual touch and enjoying sensual touch. So that's one of the biggest ones. But I do think there's all kinds of of little things that are vital. Um, Go read Song of Solomon together. Go Buy some fun, sensual or sexual games that you can play, dice or a board game. Play strip poker, you know, the stuff you might have wanted to do when you were younger. Maybe you never did do it. Now you can pull it into your marriage. Play some kind of goofy card game. And and the, the reward is you get to tell your spouse what you want them to do. Go buy, you know, whipped cream and strawberries and spray it on yourself and say, you know, do something there, (laughs) you know, have fun, play games. You know, I, I talk about indulge your sensuality Buy for women, but also for men Buy sensual clothing, things made of satin, of lace, soft materials, sensual materials. You know, if you want to tantalize each other, make phone calls and say funny 
innuendos to each other. I, you know, women can wear, you know, no underwear and flash their husbands if they're wearing a skirt as they're walking out the door. I mean, there's so many ways that you can tantalize each other. And, and then when you are engaging sexually, keep your eyes open. <laughs> um, watch what's happening between you. I, couples, I'm like, yes, do it in front of a mirror. Uh, watch what's happening. And then you've got pictures in your mind so that you can fantasize about your spouse uh, during the day and during the week. Um, we often, especially with uh, people that are religiously uh, involved, the idea of fantasy seems negative. But Song of Solomon is full of fantasy, and we should be thinking about our spouse sexually. So thinking about intentionally thinking about it, intentionally teasing one another, upping sensuality, and sensuality doesn't mean just in the bedroom. It can mean um, throughout the day. Do you do you enjoy a wonderful bite of chocolate? Do you walk on the beach? Do you take a bath? Do you need to buy new sheets and a new comforter? Do you light candles when you are in your bedroom? Do you put on music? You know, sensuality overall makes a huge difference in how much couples enjoy and putting pizzazz back in, how much they enjoy their their sexual intimacy. Those are some great takeaways. And it sounds like just bottom line, be playful, be playful, be playful. Yeah, big time. That's great. Well, thank you so much for all that you've shared. You've actually written an incredible book. And could you just tell us a little bit more about how listeners could connect with you? Sure. Um, so you can go on my website, The Art of Intimate Marriage. Dot com and it's all one word the art of intimate marriage and you can find almost everything there there are the links to the book the books I have two books one's the art of intimate marriage and the other is redeemed sexuality and both of those are available on Amazon we had one of the biggest things that people find helpful is our cards so we have five decks they're sold as a set and they help couples with their communication around their overall intimacy and their uh, sexual intimacy. They're called the intimate marriage cards. You can get those on Amazon as well. All those links are on our website. So on, on the website is the podcast. I have done a radio show. I do podcasts and all of that is um, on the website. You can go and listen to those. There's a blog on there. So there's definitely resources. So the model that I use for working with couples just to let you know, it has received a couple national awards, the, the, the research that I've done on the model, on how I take couples through sex therapy. It is also currently in publication in a peer-reviewed journal. And so people who are more inclined towards research, you can actually read about the couples that I've taken through sex therapy. And that's, that's helpful because today... Uh, we do have an emphasis on evidence-based practice. And so the practice that I use is my own model and it is evidence-based. So that's helpful. And then definitely, I love it when people send me their questions. And so you can do that on the website. It actually has a an area where you can send questions. And you can also just send them to my email, which is jenniferconzen at yahoo.com. Pretty easy, my name at Yahoo. And so people send me questions and I love to answer them. That's great. And we will definitely link to all of this in the show notes so that you can spell her name correctly, Kanzen with a K. And our final question today, Dr. Kanzen, what is your savvy sauce as a wife? Ah, well, I would definitely say talk a lot. <laughs> uh, be open, be vulnerable, be real. Obviously, that means be safe with each other in that vulnerability, but talk, be open, be real. Number one, do that first with God. Be open, talk, be real with God, and then with your husband. And that makes just a huge difference to the flavor, yeah, in life, in your marriage. Incredible. Well, and I've been privileged to know you for quite a few years now and see you live this out with your Lord and Savior, with your husband, with your children, with your community. So I just want to say thank you for your labor of love to promote healthy sexuality and the way that you reclaim it for God's kingdom. You are incredibly gifted. Your advice is practical. And I love how your bubbly personality shines through. So thanks again for chatting with us today. It's been lovely. Thank you for having me. One more thing before you go. Have you heard the term gospel before? 
It simply means good news, and I want to share the best news with you. But it starts with the bad news. Every single one of us were born sinners, and God is perfect and holy, so he cannot be in the presence of sin. Therefore, we're separated from him. This means there's absolutely no chance we can make it to heaven on our own. So for you and for me, it means we deserve death and we can never pay back the sacrifice we owe to be saved. We need a savior. But God loved us so much, he made a way for his only son to willingly die in our place as the perfect substitute. This gives us hope of life forever in right relationship with him. That is good news. Jesus lived the perfect life we could never live and died in our place for our sin. This was God's plan to make a way to reconcile with us so that God can look at us and see Jesus. We can be covered and justified through the work Jesus finished if we choose to receive what he has done for us. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to take our place. I pray someone today, right now, is touched and chooses to turn their life over to you. Will you clearly guide them and help them take their next step in faith to declare you as Lord of their life? We trust you to work and change the lives now for eternity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you prayed that prayer, you are declaring him for me, so me for him. You get the opportunity to live your life for him. At this podcast, we are called Savvy for a reason. We want to give you practical tools to implement the knowledge you have learned. So you're ready to get started? First, tell someone. Say it out loud. Get a Bible. The first day I made this decision, my parents took me to Barnes & Noble to get the Quest NIV Bible, and I love it. Start by reading the book of John. Get connected locally, which basically means just tell someone who is part of the church in your community that you made a decision to follow Christ. I'm assuming they will be thrilled to talk with you about further steps, such as going to church and getting connected to other believers to encourage you. We want to celebrate with you too, so feel free to leave a comment for us if you made a decision for Christ. We also have show notes included where you can read scripture that describes this process. Finally, be encouraged. Luke 15.10 says, In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The heavens are praising with you for your decision today. If you've already received this good news, I pray that you have someone else to share it with today. You are loved, and I look forward to meeting you here next time.